Thanks, Amy. Good morning. Welcome to Redemption Church. Uh, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to uh, get the opportunity to preach this morning. Frank's our senior pastor. He's normally the guy that's up here preaching, but every once in a while, he'll, uh, he'll let me kind of take the reins. So looking forward to the, the opportunity. We are going to resume our study in the book of Mark today. So several months ago, we started the book of Mark, and we had taken kind of a three-week break, and so we're going to dive right back into that. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to read through that and, and walk through that section that Amy just read for us. As you're turning there, I want to ask the question, um, what does it take for you to believe something is true? Like, what do you require to believe that something is real? Do you take someone's word for it? Do you require pictures? Do you require video? Do you have to see it to believe it? Or um, is, is there some other standard that, you, that has to be met in order for you to believe something to be true? The reason I'm asking these questions is because they're particularly important for the passage that we're going to look at today. Because the section of scripture that we're going to work through is, for a lot of people, quite frankly, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's in this section of scripture that Jesus performs uh, quite a few miracles and very, very profound miracles that seem to a lot of people as not possible. And I'm talking about big, like, and, and we read some of them, big picture, really profound miracles. Not the, not the run-of-the-mill kind of stuff that we see every couple years. Somebody sends you an email and they're like, hey, look, this lady found Jesus in her pancake or, you know, some other face of the Mother Mary in a tree or you're eating a bag of Funyuns and you're like, whoa, this looks like a Jesus fish. Not that kind of amateur hour stuff, but like real, real miracles. Uh, things that really were significant. What's surprising, though, is that as significant as these things were, it didn't, the, the miracles didn't seem to create the kind of true faith, the, the true belief in the people who were there who witnessed them. So let's pick up, let's look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So the apostles had been sent out, and, and now they had come back to Jesus, and they're telling him everything that had, had occurred. And this is how Jesus responds in verse 31. He says, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a little while. He says, Rest. This is important because they were tired. The disciples had been doing significant ministry, and so Jesus acknowledges that. And he says, Let's get away. You're exhausted. You're hungry. You're probably a little grumpy. Um, let's, let's get away. But there were people everywhere, and they were, they were sort of mobbing to, to see and be around Jesus. The, the new news about this rabbi leader was starting to spread. And so what does Jesus do? He says, disciples, let's get on a boat and let's, let's go across. We'll relax. We'll eat for a while. But look what happens in verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So here they are. They're trying to take uh, a break and they just can't catch a break. Um, for the moms in this room, I feel like you really get this. Um, you, you, you get to a point, right, where you're like, okay, the kids are napping, I can take a break, I can rest, I can take a shower, um, I can surf the Pinterest, and, and you get to that point, right, inevitably, where, where you, you're just sitting down to eat your bonbons, and who, what happens? You're just sitting down. Homeboy escapes from his cage, I mean crib, and comes racing out, and is like, mom, 
you're just so close to having that break, and yet not quite. I think a similar kind of feeling for the disciples. They were so close to having this break, but the peanut gallery runs around and beats them to their destination. What's remarkable, though, is how Jesus responds to this mob of people. He doesn't tell them to scram, but instead has compassion on them. Look at verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So notice, this wasn't just a handful of people. This was a great crowd. This was a lot of folks. And Jesus has compassion on them. This is totally opposite the way most of us have responded. I tend to get really agitated around a lot of people, but Jesus has compassion. He doesn't get annoyed. He orients his heart into an attitude of service towards them. And then the text tells us that these people were like sheep without a shepherd. What does that mean, sheep without a shepherd? You ever think about that? It means, it means they were lost. It means these people were lost. Literally, when a, she- when a group of sheep do not have a shepherd, they're lost. They have no one to, to guide them. And so what does Jesus do? He guides them. He guides them. How does he do this? The text says that he began to teach them many things. So instead of closing down and sending them away, Jesus offers these people spiritual nourishment through his words, through his teaching. His words were the true bread of life. And Jesus teaches and teaches and teaches. And it doesn't tell us how long he taught for, but it seems like it went for a while. And we know this because of, look at what happened next. Look at verse 35 and 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So here's the picture. It's late, and the disciples are like, "Um, So Jesus, uh, it's the middle of the night, and we're in the middle of nowhere? Why don't you tell these people to hit the road, go to the town next door, and get get some food? And look how Jesus responds in verse 37. He says, you give them something to eat. You. This part always intrigues me um, be, because I like, to, I like to try and read myself into the narrative and picture how would I have responded, what would I have been feeling. And I feel like in this less than ideal situation, Jesus looks at me and says, you, you feed them. I would have lost it. Like, Jesus, are, are you out of your mind? Like, there's thousands of people. How, how are we going to, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. But I again imagine Jesus just insisting back, you, you give them something to eat. This insistence that you give them something to eat, it, um, it elicits a response from the disciples that seems to give us a clue as to how big this crowd really was. The disciples then asked, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You can hear the doubt and the sarcasm in their voices. 200 denarii is a lot of money. One denarius was about a day's wage, and so 200 denarii was an enormous amount of money. There's no way. They're saying, Jesus, this, this is not possible. But, but it was. Jesus knew that it was possible, and so this is what he says to them. Look at verse 38. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Five. Five loaves of bread, two fish. That was it. Nothing more. The disciples must have been thinking, how 
on earth are we going to feed all of this multitude of people with five loaves of bread and two fish? It was like they had lost hope. But Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do, and so this is what he says. Look now at verse 39. Then he commanded them all, this is the people, he commanded all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and by those who were gluten-free. So, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Um, so Jesus commands the people to, to sit down in groups, and then it says, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, when the text says that it was 5,000 men that ate, that doesn't mean that women and children didn't eat. Sometimes people go, wait, what, what, why does it say 5,000 men? Um, no, there were, there were women there. Presumably there were children there as well. There were families. Um, the, the reason it says 5,000 men is because a writer in the first century, in recording an event of, of this magnitude, in order to kind of estimate the numbers of people, what they do simply is they would just, they would list an estimate of the, the heads of household. And so in this case, they had estimated it was several thousand people. And what, what we can kind of extrapolate from that, if it was 5,000 men, then there was anywhere between seven and 10,000 people, probably total. And here's what Jesus does. He feeds them all. He feeds them all, every single last person. This is incredible. This is incredible. People have approached this story and they've said, well, this is so incredible that we just can't believe it. And so they've sought alternative explanations to kind of explain it away through some natural method. And so some historians have approached this text and they've said, well, it's not that Jesus really performed a miracle. It's that people felt compelled to share. They were like hiding their food in their bug out bags. And once they saw everybody else sharing, they kind of opened those bags up and, and then it was, it, was a, it was a moral of, hey, let's be nice and let's learn how to share. What's the problem with that interpretation? That's not what the text says. That's not what the text says at all. To turn it into this little moralistic tidbit about how to share does disservice to what the Bible actually says. Look at it. It says, and Jesus divided the two fish among them all. People say, oh, well, everybody just got little teeny tiny sushi rolls. Again, the text doesn't say that people got really small bits of fish. What does it say? It says, verse 32, and they all ate and were satisfied. The clear intent of this text is to persuade the readers that this event actually occurred. Mark writes this to say thousands of people were fed and they were full. To the point that there was leftovers, right? We saw that they were, they were picking up baskets left over. This forces the readers to ask this question. If Christ has this kind of power, this kind of ability to, to perform something of this magnitude, who is he? Who is he? And the answer to that question kind of leads us to the first half of my, my, my main point today, and that's this. The miracles of Christ demonstrate the lordship of Christ. And if you're a note taker, this is, this is where we'll start, and this is where most of my, my focus will be today. The miracles of Christ demonstrate the lordship of Christ. Jesus had the ability and the power to do something so miraculous that it, it necessitated that he 
was the Lord. He was the one capable of turning five loaves and two fish into enough, feed, enough food to feed thousands of people. He was Lord over everything, and that included food. Now, not only did that include food, but it also included his lordship over weather. And we see this in the very next section. So look at verses 45 through 50. Immediately, he made his disciples go into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that was about 3 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So the disciples left. They, they started heading back, and Jesus starts wrapping things up on shore. He's dismissing the crowds, and then he goes up the mountain to pray. And as evening came, the disciples found themselves out on the boat in a nasty storm with wind blowing and with waves probably crashing over the bow. The text says that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. This was a bad situation, guys. I, I imagine it almost like the, the storm that blew through Phoenix last night. Just immense winds. I got a notification on my phone about 8 o'clock. It said, windstorm, don't, you know, don't travel. And sure enough, 20 minutes later, the wind was just, just blowing through. And you could hear it rustling the trees, and I kind of peeked outside. And there was debris in the air. There, there, were, there, were, um, there was dust everywhere. Um, there was, I remember there was a cat trying to hide in the bushes, um, and I was laughing at him. Um, and, and, and the tree branches are bending in ways that they're not supposed to bend. And I remember thinking, man, I wonder if this was like the wind that the disciples were, were experiencing. Um, the danger that they were in caused them to feel terrified. And I, I almost have to wonder, like, what got them there in the first place? Was it because they were unwise? Was it because they didn't look at the, the, the weather report before they went? Um, I, I can relate to that. I remember two summers ago, I went, so I grew up in Lake Havasu City, and I went boating in a storm. It was not smart. Um, I took some friends, and we wanted to go wakeboarding, and we got there on a Friday night, and then we woke up Saturday morning early, and my dad and mom said, you shouldn't go boating. There's a storm. But the storm was kind of moving west, and we were north of it a little bit, and so I thought, no, nah, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. And so we get the boat. We go down to the gas station. We start gassing up, and I see one of my dad's friends, one of his coworkers, and he recognizes me. He's a small town, and he goes, are you, are you going out on the boat? And I was like, yeah, and he's like, that's probably not a good idea. And I was like, nah, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Just 20-something wisdom, right? Um, it's always great. But we get, to, we get to the marina, we launch the boat, and um, we, we start heading down river to a cove, and I get a text from my dad. And it says, it says uh, Doppler radar says, storm's moving north, you should get off. And I just ignored the text, nah, dad, it's fine. So, <laughs> again, I was in my 20s. I'm 30 now, so it's good. Um, we get to the cove, and I think, okay, it's, there's relative safety from the wind. The rocks are kind of built up. And we, we parked the boat on the shore, and um, at that point, my dad called and said, get off the lake. And I said, okay, but just one run on the wakeboard real quick. And he goes, okay, and he hangs up. And so we start to push the boat out, and I told, I told my buddy, I said, get the wakeboard on, let's go. And so he starts to put the boots on, and we're pushing the boat out, 
And as soon as we had pushed the boat off the shore, this large gust of wind goes, whoosh. And we all kind of went, yeah, okay, we'll go in. Like, no problem. <laughs> we changed our minds very quickly. We lacked wisdom in that moment. We should have listened to my dad. Did the disciples lack wisdom when they went out in the storm? No, no. Why did they go out in the storm? Because Christ had told them, go, go across. And we see this. Jesus told them, go across either side while he dismissed the crowd. And in saying this, what did Jesus know? He knew that the disciples would face this kind of weather. The question is, why did he send them out if he knew that they were going to face this, this kind of weather? The text tells us, look at verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. So he meant to pass by them. What does that mean? The first time I read that, I thought, did Jesus mean to just, like, here's the boat, and he was just going to, eh, you know, peace out and walk on by? No, this is language of he meant to intentionally come alongside them, to pass by near them, not to just leave them in the dust. And he did this to demonstrate his lordship to them in that moment. How does, he, how does he do that? How does he demonstrate his lordship? Well, he's walking on water. Do any of you know anybody who has ever walked on water? No, none of us, right? And apparently the disciples hadn't ever seen anybody walk on water either because look at their response. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. The Greek word here is phantasma. It's where we get our word phantom. Um, they, they, they thought that they were seeing a ghost. So these grown men, future leaders of Christ's kingdom, they have a panic attack. They have a total meltdown. And they start cr- screaming and crying. And the text says, verse 50, they all saw him and were terrified. Now, look at Jesus' response, though. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. The wind is nearly crushing their boat. The waves are crashing in. The danger is present everywhere. They're freaking out. They think they see a ghost. And then that ghost talks to them and says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Friends, when things are spinning out of control, Christ comes to his people and he says, I am in control. When the danger seems overwhelming, followers of Christ remember that Christ is Lord even over that danger. Look at verse 51. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. This was now the second time that the disciples had experienced a a miraculous work of Jesus in calming a storm. The first time it happened was in Mark 4. We saw that last month. And the, the, the next miracle, they, well, they saw a bunch of miracles in between it, but then they saw Jesus turn bread and fish into enough to feed thousands. And now here they are, second time, Jesus calms the storm. And here's what's so remarkable. They, they have not made the connection yet that Christ is God and that it's God's power working through him. They've witnessed all of these things, but they're still in disbelief. The text does say they were astounded, but they were in disbelief. What does it mean to, to feel astounded? Like, what is that like? Have you ever experienced something that's so beyond belief that um, you just don't have words to, to even process it? 
I was trying to think, what have I ever experienced personally that caused me to feel utterly astounded? And I, I, I came up short. I can't think of anything that I've personally witnessed that caused me to feel that way, but probably the, the, the thing that comes closest was um, the morning of 9-11. I, I remember my, my grandma had called and, and said, hey, do you guys have the TV on? No, so I turned on the TV and just watching that and then going to school and just trying to process, I was going, what? I, I couldn't. I didn't even, at the time, I didn't even know what terrorism was, but I was feeling f- fear. I was feeling uh, levels of, of, of being terrified. And so maybe that astoundment, maybe that just, I don't have words for this, maybe that's what the disciples were feeling, is they, they couldn't even process this. Um, nevertheless, they still didn't understand. They still didn't make the connection that Jesus was God. How do we know that they didn't understand? Look now at verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So the disciples had spent significant amounts of time with Jesus. He had performed numerous miracles, and yet their hearts were still hard. Friends, how many of us are like that? We've seen the power of God at work in our lives or in the lives of others, and yet our hearts are still hard. How many of us have um, seen divine activity and just written it off as coincidental? Man, that can't be real. That can't be possible. How many of us have figured out some sort of natural way to explain the supernatural? This happens all the time. Uh, I, I experienced this once about a year ago um, when a, a doctor had told a woman uh, some natural explanation for what seemed to be a very supernatural event. So last year on Mother's Day, um, I, got a, I got a text from a woman that our church had started ministering to, and in this text, she asked if I would meet her at the hospital. Six weeks prior to that text, her daughter had been in this terrible accident where she had been hit, run over, and drugged by a bus, a school bus. Literally carried this woman under, in, in the wheel well of this bus. Remarkably, she had no head trauma and no internal bleeding, but she was, she was very, very badly hurting. Hurting, hurt. Um, I'm usually the grammar Nazi, what am I doing? Uh, she was very badly hurt, and so our church began ministering to this family, and we became very close with them, but prior to the accident, we hadn't known them. Anyway, Jessica had been scheduled for her 17th surgery that Mother's Day, and what was good was she was making pretty good progress. It seemed like she was going to be okay, uh, but something went really wrong that Mother's Day, and I got this text, and this is what the text said. Something has gone terribly wrong in surgery. We are on our way to the hospital now. She's back in the ICU, critical condition. Please join us if possible. This was from her mom. Her mom's name's Kathy. So I replied to Kathy. I said, I'm on my way. Um, Josh Prather and I had plans to hang out that night. It was his birthday. And uh, instead, we, we went to the hospital right away. And when we got there, we witnessed a conversation between Kathy and her husband, Joe, and um, a couple of the doctors, one of which was very gruff, sort of, uh, sort of cold in the way he presented things. And evidently, what had happened was is her body had responded pretty negatively to the anesthetic, and it caused her, her heart to stop. And so they performed CPR, and her heart was still stopped, and they kept performing CPR. Her heart was still stopped. They did CPR on her for 24 minutes. Now, from my understanding, that's not normal. I don't, I don't work in the medical field. I don't know much about that, but 
Typically, people call it around six minutes, I think. 24 minutes they did CPR on her. And finally, somehow, they got her heart pumping again. But they were worried about how much blood and oxygen had been lost from her, from her brain. And so here's the doctor telling Kathy, we, we don't know if, if she's going to ever come out of this, this comatose state. And if she does, she's going to have significant brain damage. I remember Kathy and her husband, there were tears in their eyes. Josh and I were probably white as ghosts. And they had other, Kathy and Joe had other little kids. And one of them, sweet, sweet little Lily, grasped the gravity of the situation and and kind of tugged on mommy and said, mommy, it's okay. Sissy will be okay. And so Kathy turned to Josh and I. She said, can we pray? And so we prayed. And then uh, Kathy said, David, I, I need Joe to stay here with the kids, um, but they'll allow another person, two people back into the ICU. W- will you come with me? And I'd never been in an ICU before. Um, I was three days out of seminary. It was like, welcome to ministry. And I went, yeah, okay. So we, we go into the ICU, and every imaginable machine is hooked up to Jessica. Um, there are doctors, there are nurses everywhere. They're talking, it's busy. Um, Jessica's laying there, eyes closed, pale skin, mouth open, breathing tube down her throat. And Kathy walks up to her, and she puts her hand on Jessica, and I'll never forget this. She, she looks at her, and she goes, Jessica, baby, it's your mom. Um, I want you to know I'm here, and I, I love you, and I need you to, it's Mother's Day, I need you to open your eyes for me, baby. And I'm standing there, and I'm going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And she's, she's there pleading with her daughter, open your eyes, baby. And Jessica opens her eyes and we freak out. She opened her eyes just, just briefly and just faintly, and Kathy goes, did you see that? Did you see? And she starts asking the nurses, did you see, <laughs> did you see that? And the nurses hadn't seen it because they were busy, they were doing their thing, and I'm standing there, I'm going, I saw it, and I saw it. And I was really white as a ghost at that point. And so um, at that point, the, the, the doctors start watching her a little more closely, and they're talking to Kathy, and Kathy has her, her hand on Jessica's head, and she's kind of rubbing her hair, and she asks the nurses, nurses, did you wash her hair today? It feels kind of greasy. And Jessica shakes her head no. And Kathy goes, did you see that, nurse? <laughs> and so at that point, we were just exuberant. We were celebrating. Jessica was allegedly not there, but there she was. And later in the night, she progressed. She eventually got to a point where she was uh, writing things on a little whiteboard and was able to communicate. And... Um, the, kind of the end of the story is she did recover, and it was miraculous. It was truly miraculous. God was there in the, that room that night, and I remember um, the anesthesiologist came in later that night, and a couple more doctors, and they started discussing with Kathy what had happened, and they, they had sort of explained, well, um, Jessica came back because of this, and Kathy said, well, we, our pastors were here, and it was great. She called us our pastor. She'd been at our church for like six weeks. Um, she, she says, we, we prayed, and, and God worked a miracle. And the doctors kind of wrote it off, and they had some naturalistic way of explaining it. They said, well, no, you know, we, we had a, a, a breathing tube down her, and we had CPR going. And I remember thinking, are you kidding me, anesthesiologist lady? Like, 24 minutes you did CPR. Like, that's not normal. People don't come back from that. But they had this explanation. We do this sometimes. We write things off. Just the supernatural can't be part of this. Now, to be, to be sure, I, I do think it was some combination of both. I don't discredit the work and the efforts of the doctors. I, I praise them for that. I'm thankful that they did that. 
Um, but to ignore plainly, I think what God did uh, was sort of just writing off the, the supernatural completely. Now, I do believe that God works with doctors sometimes, that he works through people to, to heal people at times. Um, but at other times, God just does it. And we see that in the next section. So look at verses 53 through 56. Now, when the disciples had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it were made well. So the disciples now pull up to shore, and immediately people start recognizing him, which totally makes sense because there was probably multiple, hundreds of people from the night before that had been part of that, that mass um, miracle of feeding the thousands. They saw, recognized Jesus and his disciples, and so what do they do? They just start mobbing him. And they come from all over the region with the anticipation that Jesus will perform more miracles so that people could be healed. And so they bring the sick, they bring the ill, they bring the injured, they bring people that are flat on their backs on a bed, and they're healed. Some of them just by touching the garment of Jesus' robe, just the, just the tip. Whoa. This is what I mean when I say this seems unbelievable. How is that even possible? The text doesn't, the text doesn't answer that question, how, how is this possible? It never intends to answer that question. The underlying point, though, here is clear, that the miracles of Christ demonstrate the lordship of Christ. Again, the miracles of Christ, they demonstrate the lordship of Christ, but for what purpose? Like, why are these miracles meant to demonstrate the lordship of Christ? For the purpose of, and this is kind of the second half of my main point, for the purpose of bringing people to believe in Christ, to true faith in Christ, to trust Christ deeply and personally. The miracles of Christ are meant to demonstrate the lordship of Christ for the purpose of bringing people to believe and trust in Christ. Now remember though, these miracles, as significant and as important as they were, these were not the, the main miracles that constitute the biblical narrative. These miracles were secondary. They were signposts that pointed to the greatest miracle that would come, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so, here's the question. What do we take away from this? Jesus is Lord, and his lordship uh, is something that's over everything. His miracles demonstrate that, and it's for the purpose of bringing us to believe that. What do we take away from this personally? Well, it depends. It depends on who you are. It depends where you're at. If you're here and you'd say, I'm, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I, I don't identify as a Christian, I don't believe that these miracles happened, I certainly don't believe that Jesus came back from the dead, then I would leave you with these questions that, that you should ask yourself today as, as you leave. Am I suppressing something because I don't want it to be true? Imagine a beach ball and you're just pushing it under, a blown up beach ball and you're trying to push it under the surface of, a, of the water. Am I suppressing something that I don't want to believe? Am I, am, I, am I pushing out, am I shutting down the possibility that God is actually the one in charge of my life? Am I closed off to the supernatural? Am I trying to find 
ways to, to reason through it to some natural conclusion because the supernatural can't be real. I encourage you, if, if you're there, ask yourself those, those questions. I want you to know that if you are there, you're welcome here. We love you. We want you to be here. And this is a safe place for you to wrestle with those questions. But as you listen, and I hope you will, Christ may be saying to you, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. If you're here and you say, no, I'm a follower of Jesus and I believe in his miracles, I believe in his resurrection, then some of the things that we take away from this are a little bit different. And so I have seven points of application and they all start with the declaration that because Jesus is Lord, this is how we respond. So number one, because Jesus is Lord, you can trust that he will provide for you even when things are uncertain. Even when things are uncertain. If you're at a place where you're like, I've lost my job, I don't know what I'm going to do. Jesus is Lord. He promises to care for those who are his. I don't know what that will look like, but Jesus is Lord and you can trust him. Number two, because Jesus is Lord, you can trust that he is near to your heart even when you are afraid. Some of you here are battling illnesses and illnesses do bring fear. But because Jesus is Lord, you can know that he is near to your heart. You don't have to be afraid. Uh, I feel like we saw this remarkably in the, the church in South Carolina that two week, about two weeks ago was, was, was shot up and nine people were murdered. And the following week, fearlessly, they march in there and they have the same Bible study at the same time. Why? Because they believed that Jesus was Lord. Number three, because Jesus is Lord, you can trust that he will help you love your neighbor even when it's hard. Um, this, is, this is an important one for me personally because I tend to gravitate towards people that I'm most like and it's hard to connect with people that I'm different from and those are our neighbors. Not just the literal neighbors that live next to us but the people that we find ourselves doing community with and, and, and being around. Our neighbors aren't any, anybody that we run into and sometimes those relationships are awkward but because Jesus is Lord, you can trust that he'll help us to connect with those people and to, to love them, to care for them. Number four, because Jesus is Lord, you can trust that he's in control, even when bigger picture issues, controversies, or concerns are on your mind. This week, the, last week, the Supreme Court announced that uh, same-sex marriage would be recognized in all 50 states. And it was interesting to see some Christians start to sort of panic, like, ah, our, 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 our country is undone. But Jesus is Lord. The Supreme Court made their decision, but they never changed what God said in his word. They never changed the fact that Christ is still Lord over everything. Jesus made the Supreme Court for crying out loud. Number five, because Jesus is Lord, you can trust him with your finances, your family, and your future. You're at a place where you're thinking, man, I don't know, I, I gotta save for, uh, I gotta save money to send the kids to college, and uh, I've gotta do these repairs, and I've gotta put money away for giving, and I've gotta budget vacation, and, and all this different stuff. You can trust that Jesus is Lord over that. Your kids are fighting in your family, and you're unsure. You're, you're going, man, what, what is going on? You can trust that Jesus is Lord in the midst of that. And because he's Lord, he, he brings peace to those situations. And for your future, you're unsure of where you're going to be in three, four, five, six years. Christ is Lord. He's Lord now. He's Lord even in six years from now. Number six, because Jesus is Lord, you can trust him to equip you to share your faith with others. Christians sometimes think, well, I can't really share my faith. I don't know what to say. I feel like I'll say the wrong thing or I won't have the right answers. Christ is Lord. You don't have to have 
all the right answers. You, you can share your faith with boldness in love for your friends, for your family, and you don't have to worry because it's not up to you. You're not going to save the person. Christ is Lord. He's the one that saves. And then lastly, number seven, because Jesus is Lord, you can trust him with your life. That means everything. That means you get to a point as a Christian where you pray, God, whatever it is that's between you and, and me, I want you to remove that thing. I want you to, whatever that is, take that thing, that idol, away from me because my, the supreme desire and affection of my heart is you, Jesus. I don't want anything else to get in the way of that. And so whatever that is, take it. And by the way, that's a really scary prayer. But it is miraculous what God does in those prayers because it's through that that he brings us great joy and he brings himself great glory. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are Lord and that you have made your lordship known through the person of Christ. We pray that um, as we press into know you more deeply, that you'd give us courage and wisdom and faithfulness to do that well. We ask that uh, we would share our faith with boldness, that we would love our neighbors, that we would trust you in all situations, and that the joy would be ours and the glory would be yours. In Christ's name, amen.